Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Danny. Hey. Hello there. How are you? Good. Happy to be here. What have you been watching lately? Well, you know cinema's dead, cinema's right? Cinema's dead. Just, who, go, who leaves the house? I don't. Films are stupid, and what's really important is a long-form TV. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's big screens that are stupid. Yeah. Very, very big screens are out. Waste of time. Unless they're like IMAX, in which case, that's Fair okay, but they're like giant screens. <laughs> yeah. But normal big screens, pointless. So, obviously, I've been watching... Netflix's latest release, Sex Education. I say watching, I watched the first episode. I've seen two episodes of that show. In which Asa Butterfield, yes. what a ridiculous name, uh, formerly the cute kid from Hugo, mm-hmm. now a sort of lanky teenager, plays the son of a sex therapist in modern day Somerset or some sort of like nice counties place. It's in, in uh, shot in Wales, I believe. Right, okay. Uh, but with the aesthetic of an 80s American teen movie, which was a bit confusing. And he can't wank, but his mum's a sex therapist, so he's very good at dispensing advice to the other horny teens. That, by the way, doesn't really make that much sense. Like, if, if your mother is, like, a surgeon, does that mean that you are a surgeon? <laughs> I mean, my, yeah, my, just gleamed a bit of... Both my parents are um, lecturers in linguistics. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that if someone... And at school, asking me about, we like, constantly come to you <laughs> for advice about... About, like... Dick uh, and stuff. Yeah, exactly, and, like, sentence structure or whatever. You know, I don't really know. I mean, they talk about a bit about it over, you know, dinner or whatever, but I'm certainly not an expert in it. But it seems to just have kind of rubbed off on him by osmosis. But I think that's like part of the problem with the show is that it's really unclear exactly what level of reality we're operating on here. Yeah. Because that's a, that, that whole concept is somewhat like abstracted from real life. Like your mom is an expert on sex, so you are or something. Yeah, it's quite a confusing show because it's aimed presumably at the sort of same age level as the cast. It's like it's trying to be like skins or something for the late noughties. Yeah, late and it, it's tone. Its tone is very skins-like. I think the influence of skins is very obvious. Uh, but at the same time, the sort of eighties aesthetic is quite fitting and perhaps deliberate because its perception of teens is quite dated, and there are sort of quite cliched jokes. And there's the cool girl who has dyed hair and wears a leather jacket, so you know she's a bit alternative. And there's the headmaster's son, and there's the sort of jock, and uh, it just all feels a bit like they didn't watch the most recent 21, 22 Jump Street movies that made fun of all this stuff. Yeah, and how the, how the times had changed. How the times have completely changed. Well, the odd thing about the show is that it's treating those things as, like, archetypes through which you can explore um, aspects of teen lives, but... 
um, the nature of being a teenager is that it's very historically specific. Yeah. You know, like uh, if you want to make a show about what teenage life is like, in relate, particularly if it's like about sex or whatever, about growing up and uh, like becoming sexually active and the difficulties involved with that. Um, it doesn't really make sense to set it in this timeless movie world where nothing is quite in you know reality because those issues are very situated in reality. So yeah, you know the the idea of what of like a teen thing is that you relate to it, isn't it? Yeah, rather than rather than it being this kind of like fantasy like experience. So I just think that the whole concept of it is quite odd, and it also strikes me as cynical marketing because it gives it this kind of glossy. A cool cinematic look um uh but it doesn't have any real dramatic justification it's just it's just an aesthetic choice to make the trailers look nice i think so and so i feel like the the decision making was cynical which kind of put me off it as well yeah do you think any or perhaps the better question would be which teen orientated tv show or movie is the most accurate or or you know got something right or um, I don't know. I mean, the shadow of these like eighties like John Hughes movies is quite long, yeah. and um, it's it's an odd thing really because from a British perspective, when you watch those movies, you know our schools were never like that. The culture of it is totally different. So what the experience you're getting watching them is not really like oh this is what it was like for me. What you know when I was at school, it's like this is a kind of glamorous and cool world that I you know get to enter like prom. like any hollywood movie yeah exactly like yeah and all and, and all that kinds of like drama and stuff um so uh um so i guess what is considered to be a sort of archetypal teen movie the relationship of that to like a british audience has never been as like that straightforward like seeing yourself in it yeah but being this like americanized thing i thought love simon that recent uh film is quite a good depiction of uh yeah, they, they tried to be about like you know what it's like being at school now. That was also adopting some of the troops and universe of uh, of American uh, teen movies, while also you know, but being something that's concrete about how people live their lives. So I thought that I thought that was quite a successful version of it. Yeah. What do you, What do you think? Uh, no, I've never really related to a lot of. I always find them a bit annoying because I always think it's like uh, just a film about people who had a better time than I did. It's like, remember when you were at school and you, like, fancied the hot girls? I went to all boys' school, okay? <laughs> there weren't any women around. I felt it was very ang- anxious all the time. Yeah. And I didn't have a great, you know, sudden character. Where's... I didn't become cool. I just sort of, like, bobbed along at the same level for the entire time <laughs> I was there. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like, you know, where's your coming base story about just an acute sense of loneliness and uh, yeah, and a habitual fucking, masturbation? And a all boys grammar school. Yeah, where's that movie? Where's that movie? Society, Hollywood. I do, I do think that although Skins d- does depict a glamorized uh, and you know sort of very sort of drugs and sex oriented version of being a teenager, it at least captured some kind of uh, something true about contemporary teen life. I think. Yeah. Uh, it definitely resonated. I think like the fact that um, people talked about like skins parties or whatever was like it obviously captured something about um, being a teen at that time. Yeah, even I mean, though like, it was not remotely like my teen life. No, though. I think it's like those opening credits. This weird like atonal bleepy bloop music, and they're all just like they're just in this sort of desolate, concretey place. It's like a dystopia where only Skrillex has survived. <laughs> 
it kind of captures something where it's like you're in this little world, but it's like you're you're the only one there. And I don't know that I think you're right. It's got there's something that um this is this is going to be this is like a half remembered, but also slightly sort of highfalutin. Uh, philosophical tangent so this is perfect but it's something that mark fisher uh, wrote about he was like a um, a undergraduate lecturer and something that he noticed in his own students was i think he he used the phrase something like it was something like nihilistic hedonism or like depressive hedonism or something for what he perceived in his own students of this like pursuit of um uh of like uh this yeah, this sort of like teen hedonism and indulging yourself in like drink and drugs and sex and stuff, but without any ever any expectation that it would actually bring you any you know lasting satisfaction, but just because you had nothing else to do. Yeah, and I think that Skins does capture that quite well. Not that no, I mean I didn't find being a teenager that much of a drag to be honest, but that general sense of uncertainty about your future and the feeling that like the way that school presents itself to you is is this sort of teleological thing where you're headed to a destination which is a career you know and, and then the promise of that coming with stability and like financial and you know stability and having a family and stuff which never really felt like that was necessarily what was actually yeah. coming uh so i think i think skins has something going for it in terms of capturing that and i mean that's that's also something that put me off about sex education as well in that it's got that like sheen of skins like feel to it but also skins was a long time ago now yeah and if you're gonna make a movie about teenagers growing up and stuff just you feel like you should grasp the ball by the horns set it in in the incredibly contemporary way and allow it to become dated quickly because uh whereas this feels like timeless in a way that i think it's just uh but not timeless in a way in a positive sense it's not a timeless tv show no no no, exactly not in a time (laughs) (laughs) right uh yeah exactly it's set in some sort of like weird fantasy uh movie world so I didn't yeah really fuck tv back to movies that's what i say back to movies exactly speaking of which uh this is about movies isn't it i've forgotten what the premise of the podcast is it's Why sort of about here? movies what is it about well i mean it's not really about movies okay it's actually about um well it's set in 2015 the future sure uh, which is 15 years after a global cataclysmic event known as the second impact and it's about a teenager, Danny Moran, who is summoned to the futuristic city of Tokyo 3 by his estranged father, Gendo Ikari, uh, who's the director of a special para- paramilitary force called Nerve. Uh, Danny witnesses United Nations forces battling an angel with a capital A, which is one of a race of giant monstrous beings whose awakening was foretold by the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you fucking read those properly. And because of the angel's near impenetrable force fields, Nerve's giant Evangelion biomachines, synchronized to the nervous systems of their pilots and possessing their own force fields, are the only weapons capable of keeping the angels from annihilating humanity. Oh no. Nerve officer Sam Foster, in our podcast, escorts Danny into the nerve complex beneath the city, where his father pressures him into piloting the Evangelion Unit 01 against the angel. Without training, Danny is quickly overwhelmed in the battle, causing the Evangelion to go berserk and savagely kill the angel on its own. Oh my god. Following hospitalization, Danny moves in with Sam and settles into life in Tokyo 3. In the second battle, oh my god. Danny destroys an angel but runs away. Afterwards, distraught. <laughs> Sam confronts Danny, and he decides to remain a pilot, so we work that one out. The nerve crew and Danny must then battle and defeat the remaining 14 angels. In a, this is a long bottle class. <laughs> in order to prevent the third impact, which is another global cataclysm which would destroy the world. Right. So that's what the podcast is about. 
is what I would be saying <laughs> if this was a adaptation of Neon Genesis Evangelion, the it's anime not, TV series from that. the 90s. It's not that. It's, it's just not a, that. No, it's not that. <laughs> it's just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me is a little old boy piloting a big old machine, Danny Moran. That's me, Sam, in these troubled, confused, divisive times. Do you know what the world needs? It needs two painfully privileged middle-class white guys discussing the infinite complex subject of racism. Who are we getting in? Uh, nobody, it's just us. <laughs> okay. First up, I'll be reviewing Green Book, in which an Italian-American stereotype learns that it's wrong to stereotype <laughs> after teaching a black man how to become more of a stereotype. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> then we join forces to review Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, if Bill Street could talk. And I'll tell you what, if... If Bill Street could talk, could talk, it would say, boy, am I a good movie. Because it is. Then you'll be telling me why Alita Battle Angel is also about racism. Because, I mean, that's that's the theme of the podcast. I, I mean, the trailer that. looked like it was some sort of ridiculous manga cyberpunk movie. But, you know, we I've, I've committed to this theme by this point. So it's mainly about racism. You're going to have to be reviewing it through that lens specifically. Oh, I will do. Uh, Plot. Plus, we'll be discussing the news of a planned David Bowie biopic, which intends to airbrush out the thing even the most hardcore Bowie fans dislike about him, namely his music. And we wonder why Liam Neeson's publicist is the least viewed job on LinkedIn. All of which should leave me that's just... That's good. A- that's, some, that's some fucking Havagani <laughs> shit. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. They wish they could come up with a <laughs> fucking pun like that. All of which should uh, leave me just enough time to tell you why I'm considering leaving film chat. I mean, I'm film chat to my fucking core, but the direction of film chat at the moment, I just can't get on board with it. I've been DMing Owen Smith. He suggested saying about a rival podcast called Cinema Steak Salad and Spotify. <laughs> or I do the reviews, and Smithy Lad just cooks me a slap-up meal. <laughs> calls me a fucking legend. <laughs> that sounds good, but I think it's a, it's a misguided. You've been talking oh, about starting a new podcast for fucking years now, and you still haven't done it, so yeah, I doubt you got the balls. Okay. Well... You know, people said that, but then loads of people wanted to bang my girlfriend, and I'm just the only one who managed. So, I think I can prove. Was what was this weird boast? Wasn't yeah, that he like, had what? to fight off a bunch of lads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You also have that 29 inch dick, which is very highly sought after amongst podcasters. So, in the week we're recording this, there's really one story that everybody's talking about, and it is Liam Neeson's bizarre interview outburst. Yeah. So, he was being interviewed, in case you haven't heard this, to promote his upcoming movie Cold Pursuit, which has been sadly retitled from the original title of Hard Powder, which covered a long time ago on Film Chat, had a whole theme song written for it by me, (laughs) and I didn't really appreciate Liam tarnishing my work. Yeah. By associating it with this scandal. So he was telling a story to illustrate the fact that the movie is about uh, revenge. And he was saying how he had an experience in his own life which taught him about the futility of vigilante justice. Which is an often covered theme in vigilante movies wanting to have their, you know, cool, violent cake and eat it. Uh, And he told a story about um, a friend of his who was raped and then 
um, he had a very, uh, well, he asked the color of the person uh, who had done this to her, which is itself a strange question. Yeah. And then she said it was a black guy. And then, and then he related to the interviewer that he was roaming the streets for like days on end looking to like kill a black person it wasn't like looking for like he looked, he looked waiting for, for them to like waiting for them the black community to start yeah. a fight with him and then he wanted to fight to start say so, and then he used the phrase black bastard and then said so he could kill him which is a very unvarnished way to describe your own racist yeah. um urges so andy pool uh wrote into us about this he said yeah, i assume you'll be talking about liam neeson on the next episode correct correct andy i thought this article was interesting john barnes often speaks well about the topic of race in football and within society Generally, and he linked us to this interview with uh, John Barnes on Sky News talking about this, and he defended Liam Neeson, who's obviously come under a lot of criticism for yeah. admitting that he wanted to commit this like violent, uh, murderous hate crime. Um, and he's defending him, saying that uh, he uh, thought he was brave of Liam Neeson to admit that he had had these thoughts, you know, which he framed as being regrettable, and that he, you know, wished that he hadn't said that, um, and said that he deserved a medal um for uh exposing speaking honestly exactly and exposing this kind of racism in society which is usually left unspoken but other people have been very critical of liam neeson about this there was a gary young column about this which is quite good that i recommend reading where he was basically saying that the 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 danger with this is that it still centers liam neeson in all of this and it's all about you know him he made his like friends um uh, sexual assault all about himself and it's all about his journey and stuff and all these other awful things are just kind of like feeding into it. like the way that he frames it in the interview is like oh i was just like what the fuck am i doing this is terrible rather than you know he did he, neeson's own telling of the story is not like oh then i realized i was incredibly racist it was just like then i realized this is mad what you know this is nonsense what am i doing yeah, yeah. i shouldn't be uh trying to kill like a black guy um I have a take on this. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, uh, basically, I think, yeah, I, 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 I think that we shouldn't really think too much about Liam Neeson's involvement in this. I basically agree with John, what John Barnes is saying insofar as it's very, very unusual for anyone to admit to having openly racist thoughts. Yeah. Especially outside of the context of like confessional comedy of the type that Louis C.K. did, you know, yeah. where... Um, part of it is kind of drawing the audience into your own uh, dark uh, in, uh, interior monologue and then exposing that and then like using that as material for like self-criticism or whatever rather than just openly saying in an interview like oh yeah I wanted to just kill someone just because they were black is like an astonishing uh, confession to make and in that sense it is an interesting incident because I think I don't think there's any way to read it except that it is exposing something which clearly exists in society and but that people do not ever admit to so it's very interesting from that perspective yeah um and i think that the judgments about what it says about liam neeson personally are kind of a secondary consideration and that professionally he will probably be fine because we've had a series of these incidents recently with uh um famous white men having scandals most of them come out of it basically okay yeah and especially with this one which is not like he didn't commit a crime himself or whatever you know i mean his red carpet was cancelled for the cold pursuit premiere but i feel like in a month or two this will blow over yeah would be my guess what do you think i don't know i was trying to because the transcript is 
interesting reading. It's I think my bizarre, I think it? my favorite thing is just his co-star is also there. He's like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> <laughs> this other guy. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's hard to... I don't want to be... Like, was he trying to articulate something about there's just like... There's just like a low-level racism to society and you can easily be plugged into it. Was that his point? I was trying well, to... my reading of what he was saying was that race was almost a secondary consideration to the lesson he was learning about the... Um, uh, the the desire for like violent vengeance that existed within him and then he realized it doesn't solve any problems yeah rather than it being about how racist he realized it was because he's promoting cold pursuit which is not a race uh right right based film it's not about racial violence yeah i think he like his only other media appearance post this thing was like on a u.s morning talk show where he said like the race wasn't part of it it was like his weird like had it been any other nationality yeah, but, but it was certainly part of his telling of the story. Yeah. I mean, it obviously also was part of it because, like, that was, was like, the one, one ca- consideration vision. that he was taking into yeah, account yeah. when he was out looking for someone to murder. So that so. sounds like bullshit. Like, <laughs> like, but but I think that is what, I think that's, like, the most legitimate grounds for criticism. That's basically what Gary Young was saying, that it's, like, obviously the most salient mm-hmm. part of this story is the racial part. Yeah, yeah. Which for Neeson is, like, a secondary part. So it's indicative of something which he is not really trying to you know um uncover if he had like fucking killed a black guy like this defense wouldn't really hold up in court would it like <laughs> no i mean you know mark Wahlberg uh committed uh horrible racial violence <laughs> yeah um uh he's in the guy. instant he's, family coming to a fu- cinema coming yeah, to yeah. Cinema, yeah, yeah. yeah with rose Byrne. so he's doing fine um, so maybe liam neeson actually still would be fine i don't know he seems like judging by this perf- uh, this appearance on this talk show, he seemed like quite a broken man by everything. Did so, he really? Yeah. I think he's, you know... He looked like Gordon Brown after the Gillian Duffy uh, scandal. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like he... <laughs> there was a sincere attempt to sort of like, you know, uh, voice something and it's gone horribly wrong. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of with John Barnes, really. I mean, obviously, racist element. Like, his, that was definitely a racist thing he thought, but... Well, yeah, but like, I wouldn't fucking. Th- I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, like what the fuck? I mean, I can't like, that is a totally mental thing to do. <laughs> completely insane. Like, you know, I don't know. Like, I I do appreciate that he was obviously telling it as something which he himself regretted and that he thought was bad and wrong. Yeah, uh, but it's still fucking bananas. I mean, it is a sort of like it's. An intersection of the like slightly feral nature of the press with an issue which demands the context. I mean, it's, I don't think it. You know, he still comes off, of course, very badly, but it feels like the 15 second soundbite of like the thing that sounds the most nuts has been the one that's been widely spread. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I did think like the actual article, the initial article, was quite responsibly reported. Did yeah. you read? Did you read? Yeah, it? yeah. Um, and it's it's quite interesting reading because the journalist obviously knows they're sitting on this bombshell. Yeah, and has really tried to report it as responsibly as possible, and has like gone away and spoken to like psychologists and stuff, and uh, uh, taken all these extra opinions in, and been very sort of measured and you know considerate about it. Whereas I feel like a lot of journalists would just report it like uh, Neeson announces he wanted to kill a black person. Yeah, um, uh, like straightforwardly, it's this crazy, it's this crazy moment. Um. So I guess the it's a it's a balance between the fact that like the press loves a scandal, so he will obviously be dragged over the coals for this. But then on the other hand, 
um, as an established uh, movie star in Hollywood, he won't suffer any real lasting damage from it. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure he's very upset now, but I feel like really in a couple of months he'll probably basically be fine so i'm not really that worried about like liam neeson no <laughs> but it's, it's it's it is an interesting story in in so far as the um the fact that like people harbor like deeply racist uh thoughts and impulses is obviously true and probably very widespread and very rarely articulated so you know i think yeah thank you thank you liam for that <laughs> i guess yeah Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Wait a second. Get a few titties open to discuss the real news now. That's the beer foley. Because I need to be a bit pissed to have these like nuanced discussions about race. <laughs> Last week, it was announced that there was going to be a biopic of David Bowie, uh, who died two years ago, the legend that is Bowie, and that Johnny Flynn, not a legend at all, (laughs) the star of the Channel 4 sitcom and subsequent Netflix sitcom, Lovesick, and also the star of Beast, and uh, a sort of musician, one of those mid-naughties folky guys, looks exactly like Zach Goldsmith, so I don't like the guy. What was his band? Johnny Flynn and the Twats or something. I don't okay, know. okay. Johnny and the Flins. Johnny and the Flins. Might be Johnny and the Flins. <laughs> um, he doesn't look like David Bowie, but he's going to play him uh, circa 1971 in a film called Stardust, which is going to depict when he became Ziggy. When he was, he used to be just a guy who had several incredibly successful songs, but then he transformed himself into the phenomena, which was Ziggy Stardust. And Duncan Jones, David Bowie's son and director of Mute and Moon and other movies. Warcraft, the beginning. Absolutely. Source code. Um, <laughs> took to Twitter to say that as far as he knows, no music rights have been granted. So the film will not feature any of his dad's music. So it's a biopic about David Bowie creating the Ziggy Stardust persona, which features none of his music. And the Stardust production team responded to this saying that they don't that is true they don't have any of the music it's like we would like to clarify this film is not a biopic it is a moment in time film and a turning point in david's life and it's not relying on bowie's music much like nowhere boy for lennon control for joy division the production uses period music and songs that bowie covered but not his original tracks the film was written as an origin story about the beginning of david's journey as he invented his ziggy stardust character and focuses on the character study of the artist as opposed to a hits-driven music biopic First of all, point of order, Control features all of Joy Division's songs. Yeah, and Nowhere Boy is uh, when John Lennon was 17. Like, yeah, it's before, before the he, Beatles. Before the Beatles. So obviously it wouldn't feature the Beatles music. Because... But in 1971, David Bowie had already had five albums. <laughs> <laughs> He'd written Space Oddity. It and, just makes no uh, sense. You know, The Man Who Sold the World and yeah. Kooks. And just had Hunky Dory out, which is a brilliant album. It's, it's very funny. It's, it's funny. very funny. First of all... One thing that I find hilarious about it is that they've caused a musician to play David Bowie, and yet they won't include his um, his music. Yeah, also he's... Why just cast an actor? Cast someone who can't sing if he's not going to be doing it. David Bowie was like 24 when he created Ziggy Stardust, and Johnny Flynn is like 36. Already way too old. Looks nothing like him. What the fuck is with that casting? Johnny like? Flynn looks like Zach Goldsmith. Doesn't look like David Bowie. Yeah. David Bowie, Bowie. There's an episode of 30 Rock where... 
Jenna Maroney wants to star in a muted Janis Joplin movie, but they don't have any of the rights, so it becomes the Janet Joplin movie and ends with a rendition of Take a Piece of My Heart, but it's like, take another chunk of my lung. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's already been a sort of Bowie movie about his music, which is Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine, which uh, is like... Jonathan Reese mayer plays a sort of Bowie substitute while Ewan McGregor plays like an Iggy Pop, Lou Reed substitute and it's about the sort of rise of glam rock. But that film's terrible. Uh, I don't think there should be a biopic of David Bowie, but like you got to have the fucking tunes, right? Surely, like... I'm not say, saying don't make it like a walk-hard Bohemian Rhapsody movie, but you got to have some of the music, right? I would, I would definitely say that one of the most salient things about David Bowie is his music. Yeah. And I would say key to his transformation into Ziggy Stardust is the music that he produced in that persona. Remember that song Ziggy Stardust? <laughs> I think that was quite crucial to yeah. his persona. I would I would say I would say so. Um so I it does not sound like the most promising project. And I, I think that there's like there must just be something inherently miserable about working on it. You know, imagine like saying you're making a David Bowie movie. With none, you just you and the entire you Bowie hand, estate is against it. The entire Bowie estate <laughs> is against it. His son has come out saying that he doesn't support it, and uh, you know you just tie one hand behind your back. I mean, why? Why? You know, can't be that rewarding a process. Yeah. Do you think that there's there would be no prospect of making a good David Bowie film? Basically, you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to go there. Yeah, but I don't know how you do it. I think music control is like the only good one. I would say like really good one even something like walk the line it's just they're usually just vehicles for really good impressions well, by the, actors the, the, the brian wilson one was quite good yeah i don't know ludas has some sort of take on it yeah i don't know what that would be necessarily on twitter everyone's saying like why isn't tilda swinton playing david bay like it should be a sort of todd hay another like his other music his other, yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> i'm not that yeah. yeah but yeah, i don't know how you do it it'd have to be he's such a sort of unique and constantly surprising music artists just making us sort of by the numbers this is how i came up with these characters thing would just feel so antithetical to his whole the whole thing that you gravitate towards and for like yeah absolutely he's, he's also he's so distinctive that i think there's always the danger of veering into kind of impersonation or pastiche it's over though yeah was a was a i look more like david fucking bowie than Johnny Flynn. You should be cast in this film. I should probably be cast. I wouldn't want to be in it. I would be well, you cast wouldn't, in you wouldn't I'd need sab- to, I'd sabotage need to sing, it. So. Yeah, that would be the. That's the reason I haven't been cast before. Yeah. Stare of the pipes. <laughs> Can't hit that high A or whatever it is on Life on Mars. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible. So you've, all, all your David Bowie auditions have, have failed. Yeah, I was like, well, how about a slow crooning version of? Uh... <laughs> have you considered Shatnerizing all of his music? <laughs> I really feel like his. Uh, you know. Later stuff is much better. Let's do the mid '90s like R and B stuff. I really like his purely instrumental stuff. Was it? Was it again? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, I want so. Yeah. So don't look on the carpets. I drew something awful on it. There you go. This is perfect. You should be. You should be Bowie. I should be the Bowie. It shouldn't exist, but if it must exist. If it must exist. You should be him. I should be him. Yes, very good. Yeah. Either don't make it or get Tilda Swinton to make it and it's set all in one room and it's just fucking nuts and they've got a, uh, I don't know, who be, who's weird enough? David Lynch. Get him to do it. He, he <laughs> He's worked with, weird, isn't he? He's professionally weird. They worked on Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. Yeah. 
Fucking, let's get Ricky Gervais to do it. They, he works with Bowie. He probably understands The him. last ever David Bowie interview is an interview he did for his appearance on Extras Series 2, <laughs> which is him just like completely taking the piss about how his background is mainly in comic acting and like he like Ricky Gervais came to him for some tips and it's just much funnier than anything Ricky Gervais has done in the last 15 years. <laughs> yeah, he's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. David Bowie, legend. You know who else is a huge legend? Billy Eichner. Billy on the street. Yeah, I see him as in very similar categories. Not just for the purposes of this segue, but I always think that. Billy Eichner is a comedian. I only know him from this YouTube series. Is he famous for other things? He also played the character of Craig in the latest seasons of Parks and Rec. The sort of incredibly intense uh, parks organizer guy. I see. He's quite intense in Billy on the Street as well. Yeah. He drags celebrities around and they do these like on-the-spot interviews with random New Yorkers who are probably all very used to meeting celebrities because, you know, the city in which they live. You can't move for them. So they just have to be pretend to be surprised as Billy says, do you want to have sex with John Hamm or whatever? That's a great episode. So he is teaming up with superstar comedy producer and director Judd Apatow to make a what has been described as a mainstream LGBT rom-com. It's currently untitled. It's going to be directed by Nick Stoller, who directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek and the two Bad Neighbors movies. And Stoller and Eichner wrote the script together. Uh, the movie will focus on, according to Deadline, two men who have commitment problems and are attempting a relationship. And Eichner tweeted to announce this movie, excited, terrified, and completely in shock, and proud as hell to announce this movie. We're making a big new romantic comedy for Universal. Ah! Yeah. Ah! Just had to read the end of that tweet. Um, So this is following uh, Love, Simon, which I mentioned earlier, which is... uh, basically the first sort of really mainstream gay uh, rom-com that's come out, basically, sort of gay gay teen movie, Um, and was uh, notable for... What's the word? It wasn't the focus. Like, it was just a film, but they happened to be gay. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... it, It just, like... It's sort of its existence was a big deal, but when you watch the movie, it was like this isn't a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it was like feeling cinema catching up with society, but for decades, <laughs> sure. too late for some <laughs> yeah, bizarre yeah, yeah. reason. It's like, of course, this type of movie should exist and not be an issue. Um, so, I guess by the same token, it's uh, welcome to see this film being made because the lack of mainstream uh, gay movies is um, just incredibly noticeable. To be honest, even though like gay characters have you know have, have been in films for absolutely ages without yeah. the films being like overtly you know condemning them or whatever but having a gay romance at the center of your movie is still very unusual yeah do you think there's i mean once again i feel ill-equipped to make the point i'm about to make but get ready trolls to blast me on reddit because sorry we go, we'll just cover some movies that are all about uh, our experiences yeah. and then we can be very authoritative i just was thinking in like 
there's Love Simon and there's Call Me by Your Name, and they're both movies which aren't about uh, the persecution of LGBTQ people. Uh, people. It's not about uh, how society has shunned them. It's just about their lives and their gayness is almost it's not well obviously it's the whole point but it's in call me by your name it's not like the the parents are very chill about it yeah it's not a plot point yeah yeah i think like we're a bit beyond the brokeback mountain thing of society is gonna kill these people it's like (laughs) well not not just in terms of it's a period thing but just that attitude yeah of uh i don't know it's like why not it's like it feels like this might have been a risk ten years ago, but now it feels almost like why wasn't this made five years ago? Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought that's one of the things that was so successful about Love Simon is that it was a film which it's not just like a straight movie where they just swapped the woman out for yeah, another yeah. Uh, boy. Um, in that, it was very much about him uh, kind of coming to terms with the fact that he was gay and trying to deal with it, but in a very liberal household where no one is gonna like you know have a have an issue with it. But yeah, it's just like it is still a thing you have to deal with. And so it was just one of the um, uh, coming of age kind of identity crisis burdens that like any teenager has to deal with. But it's like that's the specific one yeah. for him. Um, and so it was an interesting depiction of like the difficulties of uh, dealing with your sexual orientation in you know, heteronormative society, even when you know that no one who you're friends with is actually going to like have a real issue with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To... That it's still a thing you have to yeah, deal with. Yeah, of course. With. So I thought that was that was a very smart way to to tackle uh, to tackle it, um, and uh, I yeah I guess I would you know hope that this movie takes a similar tack where it's like its gayness is clearly a huge part of the plot of the film rather than just being like a gender swapped straight rom com. Sure. Also, with rom coms, I'm like obviously I can relate to the guy because I am a guy, but the girl I'm like what? Yeah. So this movie can mega relate. Mega relate to me. Yeah. Because there are two guys. There'll Commit- be so many scenes of them, like, of them like shaving and you know oh, standing no, up to piss. Finally, and stuff. a bit of fucking male gaze. <laughs> Double it up. Yeah. Can't wait. Finally, the male gaze. Finally, twice as much of it. They could call the movie Male Gaze. <laughs> That's a great title. <laughs> um, yeah, it's untitled, so they're still they're probably I'm all still for accepting it. accepting suggestions. Well, he's on Twitter. Let's tweet him. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really that's really the, my sort of main reaction to this is like it's incredibly unusual. And why is that the case? Yeah, like what 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 actually is going on? I think there is genuinely something very surprising and strange about how dominant um, heterosexual relationships are in 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 Hollywood, like on TV and in, in in movies, and that like gay relationships are almost entirely the preserve of art house movies or secondary couples. Yeah, and it is weird. Do you think? Movies are the slowest visual art form to move with the times. Like, theatre does it first, and then TV, then movies. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know, because I don't... You certainly can't... I don't think you could say that, like, um, uh, being gay is, uh, like, a, a more sort of... I mean, obviously, no, I don't want to engage in some sort of oppression Olympics type thing, but, I like, I don't think it's necessarily harder to be gay in America than it is to be black in America, for example. Sure. There's, like, a million movies doing racial issues and you know there's been this out there's been a whole bunch of like really mainstream movies about um like black people recently and made by them and stuff whereas um it's almost as if being gay became normalized so quickly that people forgot that it was even needed as representation sure yeah like that it's become you know like being gay in hollywood is so ordinary that it's not even seen as being this kind of category that you need to represent and they've just like 
you know just overlooked the lack of representation sure um i don't know does that make sense i don't know i, yeah. I mean i think it's i think it's something that bears um a bit of uh, examination probably um beyond like off the cuff <laughs> speculations on on our podcast but it is like it is a notable interesting thing it's a heavy week man we should have got up early we should have hit the books for this one we should have been doing our research <laughs> for this one man oh jeez oh, don't worry give it 20 minutes we can talk about Alita Battle Angel Shit, I'm still looking forward to my fucking Alita Battle Angel review which is all going to be about racism as well but Good. with loads of robots any gay characters in Alita Battle Angel no no fucking disgusting hetero wash <laughs> absolutely bullshit and now for Danny to review a film he recently saw and was it staggeringly brilliant was it ass clenchingly poor how did Danny form a judgment we're about to hear his thoughts if he does a rubbish job then Sam will tell him off so Green Book has finally arrived in the UK on the back of many awards it won Best Picture at the Golden Globes and Mahersha Ali is hoovering up all the awards for Best Supporting Actor and also at the same time it's had a bit of a backlash because the uh, co-writer of the movie Nick Vallelonga is uh, Islamophobe tweeted about how he saw like Muslims like cheering when 9-11 was happening oh shit I heard about that like he's the origin of that rumor yeah um Pete Farrelly got in trouble because apparently like he used to flash his dick all the time on the set of There's Something About Mary and also Doc Shirley who is the Mahersha Ali character his entire family has come out and said the movie is complete bullshit and like <laughs> uh, like you know pisses on the ashes of their of their you know departed family member so uh, the movie is about Mahersha Ali he's Doc Shirley he is a incredibly talented classically trained pianist who is embarking on a tour an eight week tour of the deep south the southern states where he's going to perform at a variety of concert halls and incredibly rich white people's houses with his two other band members both which are white and he needs a driver slash sort of protection guy to look out to look out for him while he's doing this tour Enter Viggen Mortensen as Tony Lip, Tony Valonga. He's a wise guy from the Bronx, you know. He's uh, the maitre d' at the Copacabana. He hangs out with the mob. But he's a pretty alright guy. But he's pretty fucking racist at the start of the movie. And uh, as they go on this trip, you know, friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. Is the depiction of Italian-Americans as racist, racist towards Italian-Americans? <laughs> yeah, pretty fucking racist. <laughs> uh, here is a clip of... Uh, them in a diner and Mahersha Ali makes fun of Tony Lip for his uh, I don't know simplistic take on describing his food how is that salty have you ever considered becoming a food critic no not really why is there money in it I'm just saying you have a Marvelous way with words when describing food. Salty. So vivid one can almost taste it. Hey, I'm just saying it's salty. And salt's cheating. Any cook can make things salty. To make it taste good without the salt, we'll just see other flavors. That's the trick. I mean, take the basic ingredients. We should really get going soon if we expect to get to Pittsburgh by dinner. Hey, when I was in the army, I know a guy from Pittsburgh. Except he called it Titsburg. But he said all the women there had huge tits. That's absurd. Why would women in Pittsburgh have larger breasts than, say, women in New York? Guess we'll find out, huh? <laughs> so, the movie Green Book uh, has a lot of cliches in it. 
it's full of cliches, the film. So I thought I'll start this review of a cliche, a review cliche, which is the film is a metaphor for itself in that Tony Lip is the driver and Mahershali is the passenger. Doc Shelley is the passenger. And it's a story about a classically trained black gay musician with three doctorates traveling through the deep south in 1962. But for some reason, the filmmakers decide to focus the story on some Italian-American schmo uh, who learns to be a bit less racist. He's not that interesting a character. And there's an incredibly interesting character in the backseat. And that's where he basically stays. It is, I think, the success of the movie is that it's a very well-put-together film. It kind of has a series of beats it hits successfully, and, you know, it has very simplistic aims about what it wants you to feel in certain scenes, which I found myself rolling my eyes out, but I can see how it appeals to a very... To idiots. ...white, baby-boomer generation-type audience. Simpler, you know, a simpler time. A simpler time, exactly. But it's a film about racism told entirely from a white perspective and i think the road trip element just makes well the road trip element makes the film inherently episodic but it kind of lays bare the script's simplicity because every scene you can see what the goal of the scene is like here's another funny bit where he's breaking his balls for doing (laughs) something crazy uh i'm just eating a sandwich but i'm doing it in a very uncouth manner and it's got that sort of thing where uh, you can tell the characters have grown because things that happen in the first act also happen in the second act and they react differently. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so you can tell. Because the first time we did that, he was, very, it was a bit different. The reason this movie succeeds at all is down to the considerable talents of Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen, who are great and they have immediate chemistry. Imagine they're both like there'd be a much better movie than just them hanging out like comedians in cars getting coffee style like webisodes about them they seem like cool guys um Mahershala is particularly brilliant uh he's it's a very committed fully rounded performance which is far more complex than the film it's in and it's every time he was on the screen I was like I really wish you had more it was more about him yeah because he's really done his homework I know the family's come out and said it's um misrepresented uh, the real man, but it just feels like a real character. Uh, Viggo Mortensen has been saddled with an incredibly broad caricature of a part, <laughs> but I think the fact that he makes him even remotely believable is a testament to his acting. Because I'm eating a fucking sandwich here <laughs> and teaching the black guy about jazz. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, it's just very simplistic. It's like a kind of kids' movie, but like, like stupider. You know, it's not like wow, like like Toy Story is a kids' movie, but that's that's got some complex themes and stuff. You know, it doesn't treat the kids like idiots, but like I feel like it's quite insulting to your intelligence if you want to engage with it in any sort of intellectual level. There's also be offended by it, but it's so sort of breezy that you'd have to. It just kind of washes over you, which doesn't excuse it in a way, but it's just not like egregious in what it does because it's so. Like, right. this is so stupid and lightweight that yeah, yeah. I can't get too worked up about it. Um, but if you stop to think about some of the scenes for a second, it's like, this is a bit fucked up. <laughs> like, like, I think one of the worst things about it is that blackness is only investigated through cultural symbols. There's the movie, uh, at one point, one point, Viggo Munson, they go to KFC and get some fried chicken. If Viggo Munson... It's like, I love fried, I fucking love fried chicken. They're in Kentucky, having some KFC. And Mahershali's never had fried chicken, but he's, uh, he's black, right? So what? what's that about? He was like, you thought your people love the fried chicken. And he tries some fried chicken and he really likes it. 
I don't know if the movie first for a split second I was like is the movie critiquing something about uh, you know white people view black people through certain like oh you like fried chicken and jazz and you know s- several other specific cultural things that I'm aware of but then the film like fully buys into that is that is how blackness operates like that that's equivalent to like authenticity like, yeah like he's not authentic but that's the thing yeah um and a legitimate reading of the film is that Tony basically teaches Doc Shirley to be properly black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and it, yeah, I was when I was thinking about it, I was reminded of the David Edelstein thing. It's like it harks back to a simpler time, but it's like it's just very strange to make a film in 2019 about racism, which like kind of depicts as something that doesn't exist anymore. Like it's just a yeah. thing in the midst of like, oh, do you remember when everyone's racist? It's like people are still like. I mean, I'm not saying have a sort of black Klansman style ending where like just cuts to the Charlottesville like rallies or whatever. That would be kind of amazing if like Spike Lee came in at the end and just like <laughs> cut that into the movie. Every movie about racism ends with that one clip. But it's just, uh, it yeah. Was, it was something I, I read a hatchet job of this uh, review, and one of the things they mentioned in that is that like he plays like classical piano. It's not black enough. Which is not black, but then like like towards the end of the movie, he then plays like um, uh, honky tonk. Yeah, uh, yeah. He plays like ragtime or something, and they're like, "That's more black." And then like that's kind of you know. Then he's like found his his people. It's like something like that. Well, it's a mo- well, it's a movie that sort of like yells its themes, but doesn't investigate them. So there's a bit where he's like, "Well, it's obviously raining so for maximum maximum drama." And he's like, yeah. "If I'm not black enough for them, I'm not white enough for you. What am I?" I was like, okay, that's an interesting thing to investigate, but it doesn't. Also, his sexuality is like, he's uh, gay, and uh, Tony Lip is like kind of fine with it. There's like one scene which kind of like treats it like, I feel like it's a huge deal to be a black gay man in 1962 in the South, but it's just like one scene. And the green book of the title refers to this actual book, which was basically a guide for black people of where it's safe to stay and drink in the South. But the fact that the movie doesn't really care about that at all it's weird that it's called that because it's just literally like a prop in the movie it's like okay so in 1962 like there's the places you won't get murdered in this country it's like i don't know it's weird to use racism as scene dressing for what is basically like a crap planes trains and automobiles (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i can i can totally understand why it's getting the awards it's getting because it's a very easy watch and it's a sort of movie that makes you feel good for not being a racist uh if you don't want to engage with it at all but i don't know that's what white people want out of movies about race yeah it feels like it was made 30 years ago but you the, the acting is stellar particularly Mahershala ali i don't know stick with barry jenkins man just don't make a movie with the guy who directed kingpin and, <laughs> and dumb and dumber <laughs> Looks like Sam's got a film to review, he's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you, that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much, and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. So, Mahershala Ali is in Greenback, but he's also in a real film. Yeah. A real film, which is, out of the moment, Alita Battle Angel. So this is a movie directed by Robert Rodriguez was in development hell for a long time since about 2003 um there seems to have been this little history of hollywood movies kind of uh toying with the idea of making these big budget adaptations of well-known mangas and animes ghost in the shell came out recently but that was being toyed with for a long time yeah and neon genesis evangelion which i 
you referred to in the in shows also something which is in hollywood development how but the ideas become more relevant the longer you leave them right Abs- well we as we approach the years featured in this uh, <laughs> in the sci-fi yeah. world so another one is alita battle angel which is like finally made it to the main screen with a script by james cameron well james cameron he's like he's an okay director but he's he's best regarded as a writer right yeah i think his 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 greatest plaudits come for his skills as a writer and he worked here with someone called later Calogridis, greek american screenwriter so um the story of this movie is as follows it's set in the far future in the 26th century there's oh a good God. like they changed the 21st century fox logo to the 26th century fox logo. nice so like invented the world of elite cool. battle angel and it's a post-apocalyptic world that exists like 300 years after some apocalyptic events. So it's like post-post-apocalyptic. Society has regained itself, and it's in this like slum city above which is this like sky world where the rich people live, the poor people live in the city below, and it's very hard to get to the city above. In this universe, um, a uh, sort of old doctor man. He's like a cyborg doctor who like fixes people's machine parts. A lot of people are cyborgs. In sure, this. it's the future. And he finds a, uh, in a scrap heap, he finds a discarded um, kind of head and shoulders, uh, which is still alive, um, and takes it back and gives it a fresh uh, body. Doctor is played by Christoph Waltz, and uh, the body is of Elita, the main character of this movie, played by Rose Salazar, but it's kind of mo-capped into a, um, uh, into a cyborg with, like, gigantic fucking eyes. Like, you know how, like, in anime they have big eyes? Sure. So most of the characters in the movie are just humans with normal size eyes, but she has giant eyes. When she's crying, there's a massive tear appear by her head. Um, well, actually, <laughs> she cries like quite a lot in the film. There's like more than one scene of someone wiping away a single tear on, on her okay. cheek in a kind of like tender way. <laughs> yeah. In her cyborg body, Alita wakes up, but she has no memory of where she's come from, except that she's fallen from this sky city above. Right. And as the film goes on, she is try- attempts to discover a bit more about herself meets various other characters in this world, including Mahershala Ali, who uh, plays this uh, kind of underworld boss guy who runs this sport called uh, Motorball, which is basically rollerball, but with like cyborgs. Cool. Uh, and Jennifer Connelly uh, uh, features in it. Um, and she also meets this like sort of leather jacketed guy who kind of w- rides a motorbike, but it's like a future motorbike. So it's just one wheel. It's like a motorbike crossed by a unicycle. Like a penny farthing. <laughs> yeah, penny farthing, but like a motorbike. Is there anything cooler than that? I don't think so. Here is a clip of Alita uh, recalling a little bit about her past life and uh, trying to figure out who she truly is. This body, it has the power I need. I feel a connection to it. I can't explain. This could be who I am. You've been given a chance to start over with a clean slate. How many of us get that Why did an enemy warship respond to me? Because I knew that ship. I've been on others like it, haven't I? Haven't I? Oh, whatever you were, it's not who you are now. No. I'm a warrior, aren't I? Wow. Wow. So, it's a very silly film. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised by that. I kind of wanted to see it because I was intrigued by the bizarre look of it. I think the film made a daring aesthetic choice by giving its main character cartoonishly enormous eyes. You've seen that movie Big Eyes with Amy Adams? Yeah. By the woman who paints people with big eyes? It's got nothing on this. It's got nothing on this. <laughs> when we're talking about characters with massive They should call this eyes. film Big Eyes. This film definitely should have been called Alita Big Eyes. Isn't Christoph Waltz in Big Eyes? 
Is he really he in might... films with big eyes? I'm pretty sure does he's... He lo- does he love, like, big eyes? Maybe. He loves big eyes. Um, so I was anticipating a movie that would be idiotic, that would have some kind of sci-fi spectacle to it. I think it delivers on both counts. It's absolutely full of robots. Fantastic. I was impressed by the visual spectacle. I think they've obviously put a lot of effort into this. In contrast to, say, some of the Marvel movies where you feel like they've thrown a lot of money at the thing to get it out the door as quickly as possible and it's drenched in CGI, but it's not like necessarily that spectacular, this movie is very polished-looking and its world is quite richly realized. And it's kind of a corny cyberpunk slum world. There was nothing particularly unfamiliar about it, but it's well-created. They've put a lot of effort into this. And Alita herself, with her giant fucking eyes is quite, a, you know, an impressively realized CGI creation, even though you're kind of thinking, why don't they just cast a normal person with normal-sized eyes? Yeah. And I wouldn't have to be impressed by how human-like this is, because this would have been a human. Yeah. Um, and But I, I think that there is some kind of degree of visual enjoyment to be had just uh, you know, from the from the impressiveness of how the movie looks, especially if you're at all tempted by that um, cyberpunk aesthetic. Um it's got a intrinsic silliness to it, which is enjoyable if you're into that kind of a thing. And it's aimed at quite a... I felt like it's aimed at quite a young audience, particularly in the love interest character who's, like, wet as hell. You know, he's kind of a... He's got that kind of floppy hair over the eyes boy oh. band thing. Whew. And he, like, literally, you know, he rides his sci-fi motorbike and he wears a leather jacket and so on. But he's not remotely kind of dangerous-seeming. He just kind of... He's kind of dopey and nice. So it feels like a film that's aimed at a sort of tween audience. It's like a kind of Disney Channel style right. um, feel to it, which I found somewhat charming. I think all this sort of nonsense is more palatable if it's uh, packaged as something which is obviously for kids rather than the more adult-oriented nonsense of something like Ghost in the Shell, uh, which just makes you realize like that the film is not as smart as it thinks it is, whereas this film thinks that it's dumb. If you see yeah, yeah, I mean. yeah. Um, so, uh, so I so i think it's it's just generally more palatable for that having said that it's clearly not that great a movie i don't if you were anticipating a film which has a great story or which investigates its characters thoroughly or has social commentary to it it doesn't really uh deliver on any of those fronts it betrays its manga origins quite severely because it's quite episodic and proceed towards the end of the movie it felt like they were kind of packing the issues in as quickly as possible it's almost like montage level plot events start to happen right and it still is not resolved by the end it's got an incredibly sequel baiting ending which half feels just like this is just a badly made film where the real bad guy barely features in the movie which is just intrinsically a bit unsatisfying um and it's also odd that any film which is like a high it's not really high concept but it's like it's dealing with a a character with amnesia and b a character who's half human half robot which there's a number of um very obvious uh issues around identity uh and you know working out your path in life and that kind of thing uh and humanity what makes you truly human which a lot of sci-fi films have explored but this film basically just does not address it just treats that there's not really an issue and the more she learns about herself she seems pretty comfortable when she didn't know really who she was. She's pretty chill when she does know who she is. It's a chill, chill, chill she's character. Just a chill, she's just a chill character. It feels like she's mainly a vehicle for kind of moments of like kick-ass cyborg action rather than like a real character whose interior psychology is like comprehensible or important. And similarly, disappointing characters are very broadly drawn. 
and like you sort of feel like the kind of archetypes they were going for but they don't really kind of pop in any way i think it's like a nice illustration in in a sense of how cliches can be a useful kind of shorthand that can at least make your film kind of slick feeling yeah and when they're not even done well it's just so flat yeah like it's just weirdly like christoph waltz's kind of paternal um uh, geppetto like yeah. uh character that he's playing does not really pop because even though he doesn't they shouldn't really have to do very much with him to make him this like avuncular uh, uh figure but it just doesn't really like jump out of you because the cliche is not well done <laughs> and similarly mahershala really is the bad guy he's got a lot of screen presence so you know there should be some great menace coming out of him even though he's a totally two-dimensional character but he never really gets his chance to show it so yeah, I would say I had very low expectations and I enjoyed it slightly more than I thought I would because it was a bit more visually impressive than I expected it to be, uh, but it is not good. I think in this genre of movie, I recommend people seek out Valyrian in the City of a Thousand Planets. A fucking great film, man. <laughs> which is a very insane movie, which is visually spectacular and also more visually weird, so it's like quite entertaining for that reason. Has an, a terrible couple at the heart of it who are thoroughly entertaining to watch throughout, uh, which this movie lacks. So, yeah, basically go watch Valyrian City of a Thousand Planets again. I have one question. I hear Ed Scrine's in this movie. Oh, Ed Scrine's in it. How He's... is the Dinner Lady pimp, Ed Scrine? Ed Scrine. Well, I always like seeing Ed Scrine in a film. Um, he is a kind of evil bounty hunter guy who's, like, just a face. Like, this is another thing that I found weird about the film, right? Like, I thought a cyborg was, like, a guy with a metal arm or something. But, like, in this movie, it's basically people who are, like, 99% robots. Yeah. With, like, a tiny little face on them or something like that. So, there's, you know, as far as I can tell, he's basically, like, the T-800, but with, like, a kind of Ed Scrine's face on it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so anyway, that's a that's a solid recommendation for Elite of Battle Angel. I think everyone should go see it. I mean, I, I, like, I will say this in his events. Sincerely, this movie is setting out to be a massive flop. And it's the latest of a string of mega-budget sci-fi epics that are not part of existing franchises that have not done well at the box office, yeah. including Valyrian and movies like Jupiter Ascending a few years ago. Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines, exactly, exactly, things like that. And it is sad because we do need to have some kind of mega-budget entertainment. If they're going to do it, have give us something which is not part of an existing franchise. And the more these movies collapse, the more like the more safe studios are going to be are going to become. Yeah. So it's your duty. Go out and buy 10 tickets to Elite Battle Angel. My opinion. Oh, sorry. This is not a good stretch of view. just want to say one final thing about it. I want to, I want to say something about the big eyes. I know it's like obviously ridiculous. But I was just thinking about how like... How impossible it is to imagine the same movie... But with like a male character who has giant fucking eyes. Yeah. You know, it would just look so insanely weird. Like a total cartoon. But there's something that's more kind of absorbable about a female character having the gigantic eyes and i think it's because it's like this anime there's something inevitably fetishistic about it yeah and it's this film which is aimed at young girls and stuff and there is an aspect to that which is this really unhealthy ultra barbie doll kind of thing where they're just creating some kind of impossible woman who you're supposed to identify with as a young girl but who's the hero and is sort of you know this vaguely kind of like not overtly sexualized but certainly weirdly objectified kind of perfect woman for like feels like a horny older guys there's that's a that, that's aspect the thing, is like, definitely underlying all this and it's like a bit uncomfortable like james cameron is has been at least in the past like praised for like always having strong female leads in his movies but it's like it really feels like that's just his particular kink <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. Joss Whedon. It's like, are you progressive or just like, you're just a bit horny for women who can beat the shit out of you? Yes, that's <laughs> 100% true of Joss Whedon. And I feel like James Cameron's a similar thing. Like, have you seen like all of his nine ex-wives? They're all of a similar type. They're like <laughs> lean, fucking gym Fighters, fit, yeah. you know, warrior women. It's like, okay, mate, like, what's this, a fucking 200 That's what million? That's what progressiveness means in Hollywood. You just get guys who are, are horny for independent women to make the movies. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chat begin. Start talking now. Talking about Scrine. He's got a movie out, which he features in very little. <laughs> My only complaint was otherwise perfect film. Needs more scrying. If Bill Street could talk, which is Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, uh, Ryan directing this one based on the book by James Baldwin. It's a very non-linear film, but to give you the sort of bare bones of the plot, it's about this couple called Fonny and Tish, both young in their 20s. And Fonny has been wrongly accused of rape and is on... Uh, has been arrested he's in jail jail what's it called when like, you're not officially been sentenced you're whatever in jail. you're in jail what's it called when you're in jail you're in jail <laughs> and she's trying to exonerate him with the help of her extended family including probably most notably her mom played by regina king who is kind of integral to their them trying to get him out of jail yeah and she's pregnant at the same time Yes. So that's, uh, you know, her family is concerned that the future of their child is kind of secured. And the film is many things, isn't it? It's a beautiful it's a romance. Be- uh, yeah, but it's about the black experience in the 70s. The quote is from, if Bill Street could talk, is a quote about jazz. Well, it's a reference, about, like, Bill about- Street is like a metaphor, right, for like a place where black people have... Uh, formed a community yeah new orleans yeah and it's like a metaphor for the uh african-american diaspora i guess well yeah i i think uh i yeah i mean diaspora suggests like an international thing yeah but it's but it's kind of um it's like yeah a, a metaphor for um a world which is basically white in general but where there are pockets of it where uh, black people exist it's Absolutely. like a context in which like they're sort of like a community of black people who are supporting each other. Here's a clip of Tish having already told her mum and sister telling her dad that she's pregnant. They're not too much for Tish. All right. What's going on? It's a sacrament. And no, I ain't lost my mind. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fonny's baby. Um, this is a great film. This film's amazing. One of one of the best uh, films that we saw at the London Film Festival. And I'm excited for you all to see it. 
Yeah, I mean, he literally followed up the immense success of Moonlight with a film which is equally as good. Yeah. Which is a hell of an achievement. It's a it's a great companion piece to Moonlight in a way. It shares a lot of uh, characteristics with it. It's, it's certainly a similar kind of mood. And I think it's very noticeable, I guess, now that there's two of these types of movies, just how rare the sensibility <laughs> that Barry Jenkins has is. Yeah. Especially... Uh, in a world of movie making which is like increasingly saturated by uh, highly ironic referential and postmodern films um, both Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk are extremely sincere there's not a there's no fucking irony in either of these films whatsoever highly sincere movies um, and also movies which are about deep uh, social injustice and oppressions but where that is the kind of the background to what the movie is really interested in, which is um, humanity and the good qualities of people. Yeah. And the the kind of the drive of these films could very easily be cloyingly sentimental. Um, and I'm sure for some viewers that is your feeling of this film i mean i spoke to someone who'd seen if beale street could talk he felt like there was just too many scenes of uh the central couple gazing gazing lovingly into each other's eyes who was as racist you were talking <laughs> to? um but i think you know i it depends you know, if you go with it then uh it will more than meet you halfway basically and uh, it for me it um completely poured me in and uh, i found it a very emotional experience and i think that it, it is that um that t- total sort of open-heartedness that like celebration of uh, of people um which makes the film really powerful and um it's something it's a, it's clearly a sensibility that is very strongly shared between barry jenkins and james baldwin who he's um adapting because it's something that you get in baldwin's writing as well um i which i haven't read much of but i read like a little bit of and uh, i saw that movie i'm not your negro that was made about him and Baldwin is very distinctive because he writes so sort of piercingly and like unflinchingly about um, racial injustice in America but his focus is always so much on like the possibilities of humanity there's this kind of like uh, dual kind of um, uh, like horror and hope to it you know where it's yeah. like things are so fucked up and and uh, things the like, history is so full of these awful awful events um, and yet uh the the kind of the central figure is always of um uh someone who's capable of real sort of kindness and love you know like that's where his interest really lies and the movie is centering people who are like demonstrate the best of humanity basically and it kind of the question that it puts on you in the audience is like why are we why is this not how life is for everybody yeah you know um and it's, I mean, it's un- they're unusual movies about racism because I think like a lot of movies about racism have that like kind of hate figures or like obvious villains. And this movie does have Ed Skrine's character as this racist policeman, but he's like very minor part of the film. He's got like one scene, really. Yeah, he's basically got like one scene. Um, and by putting that stuff into the background, it really emphasizes how structural and institutional this this kind of stuff is. And it's like this thing should not define you and dominate you. And it doesn't give the audience that kind of uh, catharsis, that sense of like righteousness or that kind of satisfying feeling of hatred for the villain uh, that you get with a lot of movies that have like really racist characters. You know, like Michael Fassbender's character in 12 Years a Slave, for example, or the Ku Klux Klan. 
um in um what's that movie spike lee black clansman Clansman. and um those people are all are all uh kind of pushed to the background so you don't get that kind of emotional response to injustice it evokes like a different kind of response from you which is empathy um and you feel a sense of outrage but it's not like you know it's not it's not tinged with that really negative emotion it's like a positive emotion of like you know outrage at like why can we not all live in a world which is as nice as this yeah so it's like yeah it's a hard movie to talk about in a way because i feel like you end up in paints you know talking about it in such sort of yeah no that's primary colors totally, that you sound like an idiot but yeah yeah it's also i mean i've not read the original text but it's such a skillful well i don't know maybe the book is 10 times better than this <laughs> film but the way it, it is on one hand very obviously adapted from a book in the way it's put together but I think like what you were saying about how it focuses on the humanity rather than the systemic stuff is very true, but also incredibly effective. Like there's a character played by Brian Tyrell Henry from Atlanta and Widow's Fame, um, and he's gone to jail and he talks about it. And you never actually see any of prison life, but the sheer power of this man's performance. It's an incredible scene. Uh it sort of like gives you a sense of the horror of what it must have been like to be in a black person in the 70s in the penitentiary system. Penitentiary? Penitentiary system. Um, but yeah, it's always like the experience is the focus. Like you don't see the physical world of the jail. You see, you just hear someone's interpretation of it, which is true of the entire film. It's like the only, the closest thing I think Barry Jenkins directing wise is something like a Wong Kar Wai movie. The way he uses color, yeah, and has this weird kind of flowing. There's something very uh, not, not European, Korean almost about his style. <laughs> no, I, like I don't know yeah. what his other contemporaries. That's why he feels like so such a fresher breath, such a fresher brusher, a fresh of breath air, such a breath of fresh air <laughs> <laughs> in like American filmmaking because it is incredibly different to anything anyone else is doing and his lack of nominations is just like fucking insane absolutely ridiculous absolutely ridiculous. i don't understand how adam mckay and peter farrelly <laughs> i know it's are being so rewarded stupid. when this guy's clearly a genius <laughs> he was put on this earth to make films it's like so much of a better director than those two clowns yeah and it, yeah it's like um yeah again going back to the whole sort of thing you just can't help but descend into s- things that sound like hyperbole but I heard it described as being like it kind of flows. It's like music in that it has what is quite a sp- sprawling book, and, but it all kind of like ebbs and flows and there's the use of voiceover, but it never feels like disjointed and it's nonlinear, but you just sort of sit down, you wash over it, you, two hours pass, <laughs> and then you have to go fucking hug somebody, you know, <laughs> because it's such an emotionally intense experience. Uh, yeah I don't yeah this is probably when movies are really good I struggle to describe them other than just urge you to go and see them yeah it's just um, I mean these kinds of injustices are uh, are discussed so much and I think that um, your interaction with um, uh, the the horrors of contemporary society is so often just one that's focused on the perpetrators and even when it's like focused on the people who are oppressed by things, it's in that kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I think of things like 12 Years a Slave, again, where it's just all about like how brutalized people are by it. Whereas this like, yeah. is a movie about people who are defiant in the, in the face of things. And um, uh, Moonlight is a film like about someone trying to like 
find themselves like discover who they are it's this in this three-part structure where he's like a completely different person every time and he's obviously in each case there's only one is the real him but he's just trying to work out who he is the whole time it's this kind of like sense of consciousness that he's trying to discover and in if bill street could talk it's um in a way um more straightforward because the characters don't really have that kind of sense of like internal struggle it's really outer things which are like thrust upon them that is their difficulty so it's like there's something almost utopian about it because it's you can just so clearly imagine how these people would be living if they didn't have to deal with this shit yeah they'd just be happy you know so it's like it's a it's kind of a movie about where you can see clearly what life could be like if we didn't have to deal with all this like crap all the time um and uh and that angle is just really unusual i think uh so you know i mean there's plenty of like deeply sentimental you know nicholas sparks books or whatever about like people in love but i think that this it's clearly not remotely yeah but nicholas sparks there's sort of like the problem is like one of them has cancer yeah (laughs) exactly in james baldwin the problem is the entirety of society (laughs) of society is is totally fucked um uh, th- this might be going this might be a bit much which i might i might cut but I w- i'm gonna read a bit of baldwin please do so it's from his uh letter to angela davis um uh which uh he wrote to her while she um was in jail herself do you want to explain who angela davis is to those not in the no the um black panther. angela davis yeah black panther uh activist she was like a leader of the civil rights uh movement no, just in case anyone didn't know anyway so he, he wrote this open letter to her, which was uh published in uh, newspaper <laughs> uh, but it was linked it was linked to in a review of, of bill street that i was reading i just think like his the sensibility of baldwin that comes through in his his writing like very clearly which is like so present in this movie so um he's this is like as he's kind of uh, wrapping up the letter and he's talking um in like more general terms and he says we must do what we can do and fortify and save each other we are not drowning in an apathetic self-contempt we do feel ourselves sufficiently worthwhile to contend even with inexorable forces in order to change our fate and the fate of our children and the condition of the world. We know that a man is not a thing and is not to be placed at the mercy of things. We know that air and water belong to all mankind and not merely to industrialists. We know that a baby does not come into the world merely to be the instrument of someone else's profit. We know that democracy does not mean the coercion of all into a deadly and finally wicked mediocrity but the liberty for all to aspire to the best that is in him or that has ever been. And he goes on. It's worth a read, the whole letter. But anyway, you know, it's that kind of like yearning uh, sense, which is um, uh, really present in the movie. So, yeah. So anyway, go see the film. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Also, I would say, I don't know, I don't want to draw a comparison, but like it didn't get nominated for a bunch of awards and Green Book did, but they're both, it's not like, but if Bill Street could talk, it's got very, as you've, as we said, like a very clear view about race and the systemic problems of it. But it's not hard to watch. It is like it flow. It's like as easy to watch as this kind of stupid uh, reverse <laughs> driving Miss Daisy movie. Yeah. So don't be put off as thinking you're like eating your vegetables or it's not. Good. It's not grueling at all. It's just kind of mesmeric and enthralling. Absolutely. And if you don't see it. And don't you be listening to this next turn episode. us off. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough now. Back to film chat.
Thanks for listening, guys. Next week, we will be reviewing Can You Ever Forgive Me? The Melissa McCarthy Oscar-nominated movie with Richard E. Grant. Yeah. I've said we're going to watch, we're going to review this week, but I didn't get around to it. Also, there's a new Steven Soderbergh movie, High Flying Bird, about the NBA, starring uh, Andre Holland. It's just on Netflix as of Friday the 8th. I this is no the, idea. This, this is the world existed. we live in now. Remember when Steven Soderbergh was like, you know, considered one of the greatest directors in the world and like consistently makes very entertaining films? It's just movies going on Netflix tomorrow with well, Andre Holland, one of the best working actors of his generation. So. Makes sense for Soderbergh, to be honest, because he like retired and then unretired. So I feel like just kind of throwing these movies out on a streaming service is now the kind of midpoint between retiring and not retiring. I think Logan Lucky didn't do that well as well. Maybe he's just forced to make this deal with Netflix. That, he was, tried, that was a good film. Yeah, it was a great movie. And also he tried to sort of distribute it himself. He was like trying to be like because this whole thing is like I'm a one man army I edit, shoot, direct write the theme tune Yeah, he was trying to get into distribution as well but Logan Lucky just like didn't have gotta fucking give my money to Bezos whoever's running <laughs> Netflix so, you know yeah, the streaming platform you know market has already been fucking eaten up by these two titans and just hard to make headway anyway I'm sure it'll be good well you'll find out we'll find out we'll, we'll find see out. then alright a little suspense right. for you okay okay have a great week guys goodbye goodbye let's do it What made me want to do a British sitcom? Well, as you probably know, my, my background's in serious acting before I started doing the writing, singing thing. And so something like doing the extras is, is a piece of cake for me, really. And it was fun working with Rick, showing him pointers, maybe new ways of approaching comedy that he hadn't really thought about before, I think. When we came up with the idea of doing a song, he said he would do the lyrics with Stephen. And I said, that would be great. I'd, I'd love that to happen. And I'd do the melody. But then I'd give him some jokes for future episodes of extras. So I gave him a couple of uh, my better things. There's, there's one <laughs> that I think he's doing in the uh, Ian McKellen show. It's, um, yeah, you and whose army? <laughs> Which, you know, you, it's like, that's an example of the kind of thing that I've got. And uh, there were a couple more. Um, if you keep looking like that, your face will stay like it. That's, that's really quite a zinger, isn't it? Um, and that's the kind of thing, you see. So, you know, I've been writing uh, jokes for him. And he assures me they'll be in the future episodes. It's, uh, it's been very fulfilling, this whole experience. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.